Hi everyone, welcome to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we interview Asian entrepreneurs and professionals around the world. And for this season, we're going to take our conversations deeper about our Asian identity and hustle stories. We also want to announce that we are hosting our first ever Asian Hustle Network Uplifted Conference next spring in Las Vegas. For more info and to reserve your seats, check out our website at asianhustlenetwork.com. Don't forget to grab a copy of our recently released book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, which tells the personal stories of how 21 Asian American entrepreneurs are shifting culture. You can order it on our website as well. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us. His name is Sahil Lavingia, and we are so excited to have him today. Sahil is the founder and CEO of Gumroad and the author of The Minimalist Entrepreneur. Sahil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I, I like that intro a lot. It appeals to, you know, if you guys are you guys are just listening to the podcast and can't see the sign behind, it says The Minimalist entrepreneur and i like that intro a lot because it appeals to everything but we're going to take a huge step back like tell us about your upbringing your childhood and how that shaped you to become the person that you are today yeah totally so i was born in new york uh to two uh parents uh who immigrated from india and and uh kind of pursued the american dream as one does and uh but mostly grew up in singapore so my parents uh left left the United States, moved to Singapore. Uh, and I was, I was kind of primarily, primarily grew up in, in Singapore. Um, and that's kind of where I started getting into kind of like technology at a pretty early age. Um, I learned about Photoshop. That was kind of my first kind of like the gateway drug into sort of online content creation, where I was pretty blown away that this piece of software could like basically make things up, you know, like images that didn't exist in reality. Like it was crazy to me. And so I started getting into all these like online tutorials and just like started making stuff for myself and pretty quickly, I don't know, word gets around, like people would need websites and, you know, it's like, Hey, Sahil knows how to design websites in Photoshop. Like you should talk to him. And so I started doing like freelance making basically just enough money to buy Xbox games. That was kind of like the currency of my childhood and very quickly like ran out of Xbox games to buy. It turns out there's not that many games that I really wanted to play, uh, but kept doing that. And then, you know, once, once I did that, like when, I think this is a, a, a theme that I often see is that once you start doing freelance, you start having your own ideas. Like it's kind of almost inevitable that you build stuff for other people, you design stuff for other people and you can't help but think like, once you do that for enough different people, you, you know, you kind of triangulate on your own ideas. You're like, Oh, I could build this or design this. And so that's kind of what I started doing. And the timing was perfect because as I started getting into that, the iPhone came out. And so that created a very clear to me sort of new area of opportunity, kind of like almost like a sort of technological gold rush in a sense where there was this new piece of land that no one had yet really built upon. And so I started making iPhone apps, uh, just again, kind of solve my own problems. I built like a taxi cab calling app 
before Uber in Singapore and, and built a bunch of other things. And, uh, and that was kind of my foray into, into, uh, sort of startups. You know, once you start getting into that, you start reading TechCrunch and Mashable and all of those kind of blogs at the time started using Twitter back in 2008, uh, knew that I needed to eventually, like I was still in Singapore, like I would basically wake up the, you know, Silicon Valley was asleep. I'd kind of catch up on what everyone was up to, like the Apple keynote or whatever had happened, but I felt very disconnected to kind of like my people in a sense, like there was very few people around me that knew what Y Combinator, what Hacker News, what, you know, TechCrunch, Venture Capital, right? Uh, any of these terms, what, what they meant. Uh, and so I knew I had to be in California. And so I moved to the States to go to college at USC for a semester, ended up also realizing there that there were not enough people around me that knew what startups and venture capital and all of these things were. And so I had to move to the Bay area and my ticket to moving to the Bay area was getting my first job at Pinterest. So I, they been the CEO of the company had seen my work online, a bunch of these apps that I had made. I assume he probably checked out my Twitter account, uh, saw that I was, you know, uh, not stupid at least. And, uh, just sent me an email out of the blue saying, Hey, you know, I work at this company called Pinterest. Like we're looking for sort of, we have this app, this web app, we need a mobile app. We need an iPhone app. Can you help us? And I was like, yeah, happy to help. And so I sort of built a prototype and that kind of led to the job. And I sort of dropped out of USC in uh, fall of 2010, I guess it would have been and joined uh, Pinterest full time. And then I was there until I started Gumroad. So that was, that was kind of my, my upbringing in a nutshell. We have a lot to unpack right there. There's so much that happened, right? <laughs> we take it back a step. It's like, wow, your sense of motivation as as a kid, as a young person, it's is tremendous, right? And when we talk a little more about that, like have your parents sort of installed a sense of discipline inside you, or was it something that where it was like you realized what you wanted in life at a young age, right? And let's let's dive deeper into that too. How did you realize that? And how did your parents support you along the way? Cause I would imagine like if I would have told my parents like, Hey, I'm dropping off for this unknown startup. They'll look at me like, get, get, get your butt back in school. What are you doing? <laughs> you know? So I just want to hear more about that. Yeah. Side of the story. yeah my parents were uh, a little bit more encouraging than, than you'd expect. Um, I mean, the, the, the entrepreneurship kind of, you know, or even before entrepreneurship, because even when I went to USC, my, my plan was to, was very much to graduate, get a job at Google kind of work my way down smaller and smaller companies until eventually like 10, 15 years from then I would have my own company. Like that's how I saw my career kind of developing over time. Right. Cause that was kind of the path that I, I, you know, other people had, had generally taken. And so, so it really started with software engineering. I think software engineering is kind of a great place, kind of a great gateway drug into entrepreneurship because it, it, it is to me like a very kind of independent, sort of free anyone can can create a stripe account now and or an, an itunes account and start selling products directly to an audience without a degree without a certification like you can't start practicing law or become a doctor as a 16 year old kid like not super cool right um, but you can sort of totally start becoming a software engineer and so that's initially what attracted me to that is just the lack of gatekeepers like i've always had a problem with people who say I can or cannot do something. Um, and so it was kind of like, I thought about going into architecture, like similar problems. And so software engineering was really the only path that I saw to being able to like make stuff without gatekeepers telling me that I could or could not make stuff. Right. But I didn't at that time consider it like a real 
job, I was like, Oh, I can make like a couple thousand bucks a month, like on the side and it'll be cool. Right. I didn't really realize like, wow, you can actually make a career out of this. And it's called software entrepreneurship or startups or, or whatever. But the reason, the reason I got into it was partially because I saw, you know, I, my parents emigrated from the U S to go to Singapore to kind of try to grow their careers um, and find more success. And so there was kind of a lot of my peer group or, you know, similar kind of parents and everyone, like literally I never met a parent who loved what they did. Like everyone I met like every, and, and, and totally fair because, you know, you're optimizing for different things when you're an immigrant and you're leaving India, like very different kind of set of motivations. Right. Um, but there was like a singular focus on basically we need to get rich. We need to make money so that our kids can go to college or whatever the kind of motivations may be. Uh, they never wanted that to be kind of a bottleneck to, to me or my brother. Um, but everyone I talked to like whose parents were in finance or, or whatever else, like no one was excited about what they did every day. Like, I still can't really tell you like what my parents, like what my dad did, you know, for work, like at his job, like moving numbers around or whatever, like it just felt like soulless to me. And so I knew that that while everyone else I knew basically was going to get into some sort of corporate track, either in finance or, you know, I banking or I don't know, consulting or, which is actually like now what I talk to my high school friends, like almost everyone actually did that. You know, Um, I was the only one who did not basically who pursued software engineering and, entrepreneurship and startups and all these, these sorts of things, um, which honestly blew my mind given how obvious it felt the iPhone was to, to me. And even today, I still feel like there's a lack of people getting into it, to be honest. But yeah, I just, it was, that was a huge motivational thing for me. I was like, wow, everyone I talk to hates what they do. So there's no way I, I can ever get into the finance industry. Like it just seems brutal. No one likes what they do. You don't get to make anything. Um, yeah, I just didn't, you know, and so that was really my motivation was like, what can I do so that I don't have to do that? Right. What is, what is an alternative? What is an exit strategy? And that was kind of software and startups. And when I realized like, wow, I can put a st- an app in the app store, charge one ninety nine, two ninety nine for it. And like a few hundred people will pay me money for that. Maybe more. That was kind of the gateway drug for me of like, wow, like once this is, you know, it's kind of Pandora's box, right? Like once you realize that is possible, then the world kind of opens up quite a bit, I think. So that's, that's kind of, I think why I got into it initially. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to frame things for our listeners in, in perspective, 2010 was a pretty turbulent time because it was right after the 08 housing crash. And for you to be, comfortable with even more instability <laughs> during that time period it's shout out to your, your personality and your your risk averse abilities to like see the opportunity and go for it and on top of that in 2010 software engineering isn't as popular as it, as, as it is today right i mean i'm also a fellow software engineer too i graduated 2010 so i see the market at the time if i were compete to compete with these kids nowadays i would lose so hard you know <laughs> i'm very glad that i'm not starting off today that's for sure yeah i yeah. also want to add to that too it's like you know i i also know a lot of people in like finance and accounting it that stuff is like very robotic work you know like so you're right like you're not really creating anything you're just going into work and like doing the same thing over and over again and brian and i actually talk about this all the time in terms of like schools teaching about software engineering and computer science in like San Francisco school district. 
I actually grew up in San Francisco and I went to school in San Francisco and they actually taught like rarely taught any classes on that subject. And that's so ironic. You know, we're in Silicon Valley, we're in San Francisco and you would think that they would teach more classes about that. We did have one, but it was taught by a student on like, you know, HTML. <laughs> it was just like very, very basic stuff. It was like not anything like remotely close to what you would need to know if you wanted to get into like software engineering um, positions when you grow up, you know? So it was just very ironic. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it, I, I spoke at, I think it was like the University of North Carolina or something like that. And and like, I gave this like talk and, and you know, I someone asked like, you know, what languages should we learn if we want to get into software engineering? And I'm like literally talking to like the engineering department. And I was like, definitely don't learn Java, like learn or C, like learn Python or Ruby. Uh, obviously learning something is better than learning nothing. But in terms of getting a job in, in a, you know, JavaScript, Ruby, Python, et cetera. Like that's what most things are built in today. If you're joining a startup and like, it was, it was kind of like an audible gasp, like what, like we've been learning the wrong thing this whole time, <laughs> sort of thing. And I'm like, yeah, it's a huge problem. I mean, it's a huge, you know, the problem, I think one issue is that if you know those skills, you're not teaching in school, right. You are making $250,000 a year working at Facebook or something like that. Like, I think trying to get those kinds of people into this, these universities just doesn't really happen. Uh, even at, yeah, even in 2020, like in really pretty good schools, like you have to kind of go to, there's very few schools, maybe Stanford or Berkeley or something that like, you can really learn iOS development. Like it's just super hard to, to learn. And I can't imagine now with what's happening in crypto, like <laughs> there's probably no school on planet earth where you can learn, you know, about crypto or web three, uh, from a university teacher, like you kind of just have to figure it out yourself, like Googling, you know, 24 seven sort of thing. So mm -hmm. it's still very early days. Like that, that's what it, get, it makes me think is like, wow, if this is still not easy to get into, like we're still must be so early into kind of software engineering as a discipline, you know? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And you shouldn't be throwing those words around too much. Okay. You get everyone excited around you. W3 where? <laughs> what three? Yeah, I mean, let's let's quickly dive into you know being the second employee of Pinterest. Like, what was that experience like? Because we all know Pinterest nowadays as this big company that it's like one of the staples in, in Silicon Valley, right? One something that we use every day for inspiration. What was mm -hmm. really building out that framework like? Scaling out the team, and after we hear that story, like, how did how did you transition that experience over to Gumroad? Right, you want to hear like that link between your experience as the second employee to starting your own thing eventually. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I think working, working at Pinterest was an interesting experience. I, I, I think it was probably more unique than I thought at the time, because that was my first foray into like working at a company at all. And so I was like, okay, like this is what all companies must be like. And, you know, at the time Pinterest was, you know, we had an apartment basically in uh, Palo Alto and a roommate even. And there was four of us total, two founders, one number employee number one, Yash and me. And and then Marty joined. So I guess five and then soon six with Enid. So maybe six or so. Uh in a room, you know, with like IKEA desks and like MacBooks or whatever, right? Like that's it. And like it really showed me like, wow, this is what it takes to build a company, like almost nothing in today's world. Like a laptop, an internet connection. I'm sure everyone has an iPhone, 
some desks, a couple chairs, you know, and that's it. Like, you know, that's like an amazing, amazing thing. And, you know, that's how Pinterest, which is, I don't know what it's worth today publicly, but probably like $40 billion or something like that. Um, that, you know, that's what it took, you know, just like a, you know, six people in a room with some laptops. Uh, and then the day-to-day was actually incredibly like similar to everybody else I've talked to, which is you showed up to work, you know, you ship some code, you fix some bugs, you design some stuff, you have a meeting or two, you talk to some customers and then you go home, you know? And it's like, I think one thing that I think people may expect working at like a startup, like Stripe or Pinterest or something like that is that there's like some magic, like there's some secret sauce. Uh, and it's like, no, the secret sauce is a lot of duct tape. Like every startup is on fire. Like it's just crazy. Like, I don't know. I remember reading about Facebook scalability problems and I was like, wow, I don't even comprehend how you scale like a billion user website. Like, how does that, like, where do you even store the data? How do you make it fast? Like, how do you do search? Like, I don't like, as just as a kid, I was like, I don't know how this would even, how you'd build something like this. And then you talk to someone who's done it and you're like, they're just like, they break it down and they're like, Oh, you just have like a bunch of databases and you shard them and then you shard them in this way. And then if people ping, you know, people who's, names beginning with a you send them to this database and obviously this whole time like computers and compute are getting faster and cheaper so it's getting easier and easier like a single person could build a billion dollar user instance of some product today right like it's possible now with amazon you know web services and google cloud and and uh, all, all these sorts of things which is just mind-boggling i think but um yeah it was, it was honestly like a very boring sort of startup in that way where like it was just like you come into work with a bunch of smart people and I probably didn't appreciate at the time, like how awesome everybody was. Like I've talked to, you know, lots of startups since. And I was like, okay, yeah, Ben is an exceptional person. He is now the CEO of a $40 billion company instead of a CEO of a six person company. So like very few people can run a $40 billion company. So I probably, I just assumed everyone was like Ben, you know, versus like, okay, maybe Ben is kind of an exceptional uh, founder CEO. Um, But I don't know. Yeah. I think the biggest thing it taught me was like, there are no secrets. There's no magic. There's just a bunch of people working really hard on a problem who are very kind of uh, honest about it. I think that's the thing that a lot of people get stuck on is like, you know, pivoted uh, Pinterest pivoted, you know, three or four times as a company and even as a product. And so I think that takes a level of like discipline in the sense that like you have to confront the fact that you built something that no one wants. And that's hard. I think very few people could do it. And even before Pinterest, I think Ben had had like one or two different companies had gone through YC two or three times, like had been through, you know, like many people, I think at that point would have stopped, right. They would have gotten a job at Google, like he had before, or, 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 you know, stopped being an entrepreneur in some capacity, but like, he was like, you know, still going. And now, you know, now he's, a billionaire, you know? Um, but like, yeah, that I, so I, I remember talking to him one time, one thing that I asked him was like, yeah, what's the difference between people who succeed and people who fail. And he's like, basically there's only one thing that is consistent, which is the people who fail stopped. Everything else is, you know, debatable, but like definitionally the only thing that people who failed, like why they failed is because they, they stopped. Like, otherwise you're not yet failing, right. You're still going. Um, and so that was like pretty profound to me. And I think probably informed the way that I thought about Gumroad when it wasn't doing so well in sort of the middle of the journey. Like I was like, well, you know, the people who succeed are just the ones who don't stop. So I should keep going, you know? Mm -hmm. And I I believe that like pretty deeply, like, obviously it's not always true. There's certain people who should stop, should give up. Like it is healthy to revisit 
your prior assumptions, but I think if you have conviction and you really believe in a certain life path for yourself and there's, I don't think you should settle on that. Like, I think it's worth figuring it out, even though it might take five years or 10 years to, to get to that point, you know? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that statement too. Just it, as long as it's all about, it's, I mean, at that stage, right? It's all about the founders. Like you have to keep pushing forward. If you truly believe in something, you're going to find something that breaks through, right? And you know, as Steve Jobs famously did with Apple, it's like if you believe in something hard enough, you sort of just mend reality and just bend it and like make things happen, right? But it takes a lot of conviction, a lot of, a lot of, um, like knowledge and experience, like sort of just grind it through when everyone's is against you. And I really like the fact that you brought that every startup is always on fire. I don't think that when we look from an outside in, we look at Pinterest or we look at Facebook or something, we're like, oh wow, like these companies are so well run. Like I want to work there. This seems like it looks like Disneyland. I'm gonna walk inside, right? But in reality, it's it's a bunch of people that believe in the vision and they make things happen on a daily basis. So yeah, see, I mean, Facebook, Facebook is Disneyland, but it's also on fire all the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> both, both, on fire. I mean, that's like, I mean, by the way, Disneyland's probably on fire all the time too, right? <laughs> oh like, yeah, for you sure. You probably don't see it, but yeah. I can't imagine like what must go down at, Dis- you know, like the oh. amount of kids doing stuff they shouldn't be doing. Like, yeah, I, I, I actually like reminded me of like, I did see a photo of Disneyland actually. And, um, it was like the, the sort of, it wasn't like a trash shoot, but it was like the hallways that kind of people would go down that to like collect trash and like move stuff around. And, you know, basically like the, the hallways of Disneyland, like just like an airport, right. You don't see most of the airport because, security, right? Like most of that is hidden away from you. And it's like people drive in there and cars go through and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, but I saw that photo and I was like, Holy crap. Like obviously Disneyland must have this. It's not like trash just mass magically just disappears. Right. They don't shoot it with a gun or something, but it, when you see it, you're like, Oh wow. Like that's, it's just a bunch of duct tape, you know, again, or, or like Vegas is like this, right. You can see this where you like (laughs) strip of Vegas and you're like, wow, this is crazy, beautiful. You know, maybe I guess people disagree on that, but I think it's beautiful. Uh, it's just cra- crazy, right? Crazy stuff happening. And then you drive like on the other side and there's just like a bunch of like warehouses and like trucks pulling in and pulling out. Right. And you're like, Oh, okay. It's just, you know, it's just a bunch of equipment, you know, um, and food and people like making this thing happen, but it doesn't happen just organically it happens because humans and a bunch of humans work together to make it happen. And it's not easy either. It's just like a lot of hard work, you know, to, to, to do what everybody does, I think. So. So true. So true. Not a lot of people see what's happening behind the scenes. And I also wanted to add, like, I, I think, you know, what you mentioned, I really, really like your perspective when you mentioned that, like when you saw Ben could do it with Pinterest that you thought like, Oh, anyone could do it. You know, I think it's it's also like a lot of people can't comprehend how people are like running businesses at that magnitude. So they don't think it's possible. But if you're talking to people every day on like a daily basis and like, you know, hearing them, hearing what they're saying, like, Oh, it's like, it's even if it's complex, it's actually really simple. Like all you need is A, B and C and you can do it. Right. All you need is like hard work and consistency and just don't stop. Right. And I think if you have the opportunity to like talk to them every day and just like hearing them out, seeing what they're doing on a day to day basis, like, you know, it is possible. And for you to have that experience, it's like, I think like being so young too, being at Pinterest at such a young age, you were able to have the opportunity to kind of have like an open window to see like yeah. what is possible. 
Yeah. And they're very like transparent. And, you know, one of the reasons I joined is because they're very open to me, like sitting in on like pitch meetings with benchmark and like things like that, that like a lot of people just don't get to do because they just don't ask, you know, I was very upfront, like, look, I, this is what I care about. Uh, and it turns out everyone is cool. Like if you're showing drive and hustle, like people are pretty willing to like, it's like, wait, you're going to do work for me for free. Like, or like you're going to, you're offering to do more. Like, of course I'm going to say yes to that. But I think a lot of people, you know, fear that I would say the, the other thing, there's this rule in system design called Gaul's law. I think it's gal's law, Gaul's law, which basically is like every system, every complex system starts as a simple system and then gets more complex over time. And no complex system was originated as a complex system. Like you can't make up like a really complicated system without basically starting from some small thing and then adding layers and layers and layers onto it. Right. And just like the reason Ben can run Pinterest, which is like, I think three or 4,000 employees. Now I was talking to him the other day, actually, I was like, how do you do this? And he's like, it's the same on basically. Right. It's like what I was doing before. It's just more people that I don't see or interact with, but like I'm doing the same. And you know, he didn't go from zero to 3000 people, right? He went from zero to one to two to three to four to five to six, to literally every single number down the line. Uh, and so it's, yeah, it's just, it's totally possible. Like how can Jack Dorsey run square and Twitter at the same time? Like, how is that physically possible? Well, the truth is he could run five more companies at the same time because his time is not the bottleneck. Right. And like this, this stuff gets scaled out. People do the jobs that you used to be doing and you get to kind of operate a higher, higher level of abstraction or Elon with Tesla and SpaceX and, and, uh, all the other things he's probably, you know, Twitter, like blah, blah, blah. Like there's enough time in the day. It's, you know, and, and, and the, the human brain is like insane. I mean, it's like a, it's a crazy, crazy invention or discovery or whatever. Right. But it's, it can do so much. Like it's, it's crazy how much it can do. Um, and I think people like just under, but, but the way you get there is you have to start small and then like iterate and improve and add complexity over time, just like Gumroad or Pinterest or Facebook, like all these things started out really small, like tiny MVPs. And then over time you add employees and people and users and, you know, like, just like how you scale Facebook to a billion users, you don't, you can't, you like, no one knew how to do that when Facebook started. Like literally nobody had ever done that in the history of humanity. No one had ever scaled a single service to a billion people. And then now there's like three or four or five or 10 different services that have done that, you know? Um, so like you have to have confidence that you'll be able to figure it out as you go. And you, and that's the only way you cannot like sit, you know, Zuck couldn't have like sat by himself and been like, I, this is how you scale Facebook to a billion users. Like literally the technology to do that didn't exist, you know, it, it, but like, it's almost like a level of faith that like, if you believe you can go to Mars, you'll, you also have to believe that the technology you need and the costs lowering and the economies of scale and the people will show up as you make progress towards that goal. It's like the bridge will get constructed, like as you walk you know, on the bridge, um, which I think is scary to a lot of people. Like, I think many people want all the answers before they get started. They're like, I need to know how this, I have a friend actually, who was like really early at square and he's like, you know, he's made enough money. He doesn't really have to work a day in his life. Uh, but yeah, he's always, he's wanted to, he's wanted to start companies. And every single time he like pitches me on an idea. I'm like, this is great. Start, you know, start working on it. And he's like, well, this problem, there's this problem here. There's this, that. And it's like, I, ha I haven't figured out how we get to this point. And it's like, well, you never will, <laughs> to be honest. Like if you're waiting for all the answers, like it's like, 
the minimalist entrepreneur, the book that I wrote, I didn't have the title until I finished writing the whole book. And then I had to come up with a title that represented what's in the book. Right. But if I sat around and like waited for the title before I wrote the first chapter, before I wrote the second chapter, et cetera, like I would never have gotten to this point, you know, where I have a book. I had no idea how to write a book. I just had faith that I would figure it out along the way and people would help me because, you know, other people have, uh, you know, like it's, it's not like I'm the first ever to write a book, so it must be possible. And, you know, so I, that, that, that happens quite frequently. Like as long as you start and you take, that's the hardest thing to do. Other people are happy to support you because they don't want to start, you know, they don't want to start from scratch. They want to join and help, you know, just like I did at Pinterest. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And so as long as you start, there's going to be way more people who are going to be willing to help you get to the next step and the next step and the next step after that. So I absolutely agree with that statement. Taking action leads to great results. As long as you keep on moving your feet and doing more every day, you're going to continue. You're going to build up the momentum that people want to be a part of. Right. But it's hard to like push the momentum forward and really take action every day. Uh, like, like Maggie said earlier, it's about consistency, about taking action, it's about believing in yourself, about a lot of things, right? But most importantly, just moving forward is... Yeah. I have one story real quick that I think is a really good one, like from my Pinterest days. Um, the way the Pinterest P was designed was that we hired a designer and that person, um, I believe weed was involved, but basically would draw... <laughs> I, I don't know what the number was, but I heard hundreds of P's and every single P the only rule is that each P had to be different than the last P. So you had to come up with like a different design for the P. And that is a really amazing thing that everyone I know does is like, you just do a lot, like to make something really good. You kind of just have to do a lot of them. And it does, but it just doesn't get talked about. I think people think that to come up with a pinch P, you like sit down and you draw a P and you're like, cool, that's, you know, edit it a little bit here and there. No, you just start from scratch. You do it over and over and over again. You force yourself to keep moving, as you mentioned, and eventually you'll get something really, really compelling. But that might be your like 300th P, you know, where you would have given up at 299. You know, it's like, no, you have to keep going and going and going and go until you're bored. I think it's actually incredibly important to get to a point where you are bored of what you're doing because then you'll force yourself to have like more and more interesting, weird ideas. You're like, this is a stupid P, but I've drawn all the easy ones. So I'm going to do one that looks like that. And then, you know, that's how you break out of your patterns. And, and I think, uh, bless, bless that person. It drew that P it's a staple P now. <laughs> yeah. Now, now everyone knows that P it's pretty, it's pretty cool, you know? but it, yeah. that's what it takes, you know? I love that. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. I mean, that it's, that like applies to everything. You know, that's like a really good analogy to remember guys go out there and draw your peas until you get it right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Draw your peas. Um, yeah. it works. It works. Like you literally, if you draw, if you do something 300 times, you will do something good right? Like what are the statistical odds? Even if you have a 1% chance, it's basically becomes a 99.9% chance. If you do something 300 times, right? Like if you, if you do 300 golf strokes, like one of those things will be good. Like, you know, uh, and then your mental model, your brain will be able to do it again because it now it kind of knows what it needed to do. Like that's what, that's how muscle memory gets built. Right. Like that's Mm -hmm. literally what muscle memory is, is you, you cannot read a book on muscle memory, right? No, you have to like practice the stroke or the swing or the whatever movement. And then eventually like, you know how to ride a bike and you have no idea how, like I, you cannot tell me how you ride a bike. Right. 
but you know how to do it. You can't teach anyone else. All you can do is encourage them so they don't give up. And I actually think like many things in business and entrepreneurship and software, et cetera, like it's like riding a bike where you just have to do it and you'll figure it out over time. It'll click, like things will start to click for you and you don't have to think about them so much. Just like speaking a language, right? You don't have to think about speaking the language all the, you know, over time you get better and better. Like, I don't, I don't know how the English language works. I like, it's freaking weird, but I just speak it and people speak it back to me. And, you know, like, I don't know, but like, sometimes someone will sit down and be like, have you thought about the fact that this weird rule exists in English? And I'm like, that's weird. I don't know how foreign speakers have to figure that out. That's like insane, but I've never, like, for example, you can't say like the red big truck, right? You have to say the big red truck. Why? Why? I don't know. I literally don't know, but you just know that it feels right. It sounds wrong when you say the red big truck, you know? Um, And so like, you know, you have to say the big red truck. And so you, the only way to learn those things, like you can't read that in a book, you're never going to be able to memorize it. You know, mm-hmm. you just have to do it enough. And then eventually you just stop thinking about it. Your brain just, your brain just works. You know, I never have to think about, Oh, what order are the you just get tougher, you know, you just get yeah. a lot tougher and life experience happens yeah. and you learn more. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I like that English uh, reference, though. I think about that all the time. I'm like, if anyone was a fur- foreigner who was like trying to learn the English language, if I, if that was me, I would get so frustrated. Like, like words like yacht. Like, why, why did yeah. they spell it like that? You know, it's it's just like simple things yacht. like that. Yeah, yacht is a very strange. Thing. <laughs> Don't so, stare at me. any word you stare at too long. You'll start to be like, what is like equity? You're like. Equity. <laughs> What is that? Yeah. It's totally random. The other crazy thing is like, uh, there's no spaces when you speak. Like, yeah. there's no spaces when you speak. You just speak in a constant, blah, 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 blah. like to anybody else. That's what it sounds like. And so even the spaces that are like in your head, they're, they're projected in your head. You know, uh, it's like when I say, you know, it's just, you know, it's a one, one word, one word. Like, I don't say one word you know um so it's but it's yeah you just you just don't think about those things after a point right um so yeah same goes for i think many 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 skills that we just don't apply the same mental model to but would probably apply pretty well yeah for sure so sahil we'd love to talk about gum road um you know you being at the age of 19 a solo founder and, you know, founding Gumroad in 2011, you know, we obviously know that it grew at such a substantial rate and almost immediately you raised about $10 million. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So talk about just like the inspiration of founding Gumroad and what was that growth like at such a young age? And the lesson learned too, because, you know, we followed Gumroad for a bit. So we want to hear all about it. Yeah. Totally. So I started Gumroad as a weekend project. Initially, I wanted to sell this pencil icon that I designed in Photoshop to my audience on Twitter. And I just assumed it was going to be easy. This is something I've, this is a lesson learned for me is like, anytime I think something's going to be easy and then it isn't for whatever reason, great business opportunity there. You know, in the book, I call them toast stubs where you're like, I should be able to do it. And then you can't. And then most people, most of the time say, Oh, no, too bad, you know, or like, there's a reason that this thing is hard or broken or annoying or expensive or whatever. Right. Like there's a reason that there's no Starbucks like six miles away from me or whatever. Like, but, uh, often there isn't <laughs> often like just no one has done it yet, you know, or solved the problem yet. So anyway, I wanted to sell this pencil icon thought I could, 
realized I couldn't like literally it was like there was, I needed to build like a website and embed like a PayPal button onto it. And then I would have to like email everyone who buys the thing and send them like the PDF or, or in this case, the icon file. It just was like really strange to me. And my epiphany, sort of the reason I thought it was kind of had the potential to be kind of a high growth startup was basically this realization that, wow, like there must be so many people, right? Musicians, designers, writers, filmmakers, stand-up comedians, photographers, like all sorts of different kinds of creative people who are building audiences online. That's getting easier and easier with Twitter and Facebook and Pinterest and Reddit and YouTube and Instagram, et cetera. And there's all of these people, none of them have websites. Like they just have these audiences. They need to sell stuff directly to them. And so that was kind of the idea behind Gumroad. I started it out as basically a bit.ly plus a credit card form, like a very, very simple MVP where you would say, Hey, I want to send people to this file. I want to charge a dollar or $5 or whatever. And then we would just facilitate the transaction. And then every month I would manually pay everybody out to make sure that, you know, there was no real marketplace. I was just like handling the transactions and then paying everybody else out very, very, very manually. And, you know, once a month, uh, and it would take me like half a day on a Saturday or something like that to do using PayPal. And so, yeah, I was, I had the idea for it and it was, it honestly, I think reminded me, I, I think I didn't realize this at the time, but one of the reasons it excited me so much was the app store was what unlocked this whole career path for me. Right. And what the app store did was it allowed me to focus on making an app instead of payments and legal stuff and operations and finance and all of, all of the non making the new app, right. I could outsource to Apple and it costs a lot of money to do that, but Apple would handle it and it was worth it for me. And Gumroad felt similar in that way, where it was a platform, it would help people sell content and then they could just focus on making the content and Gumroad would kind of automate the sales operations, finance, legal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you just get like a paycheck in the, in, you know, at the time in your PayPal account once a month. Um, and so I shipped it that sort of weekend project on Monday morning, got a bunch of eyeballs. Like there was a lot of interest in this kind of idea and part of that interest was a bunch of investors in Silicon Valley. And, you know, part of working at Pinterest at the time and being in the Bay Area was like I'd started networking with, you know, investors and founders and engineers and designers and all, all the sorts of people who, you know, kind of are in, in the startup industry. And so there was a, the minute it launched or maybe the hour it launched or something, uh, there was just tons of interest, like tons of people being like, wait, what? Like you built this whole product and you're, you know is this a company? Like, are you raising money? Like that, those are just the kind of questions that people ask in Silicon Valley. And it was kind of like almost similar to Pinterest where like Pinterest was like, Hey, did you know you can work at a startup? I was like, wait, what? I can do that now. Um, I thought I had to get a degree, you know? Um, and so the same thing happened with Gumroad where there was enough demand from people who were like, Hey, if you like, let me know when you start this as a company or start another company, I'd love to invest. Uh, and I got, maybe even just one or two or three of those people. And I was like, wait, like, wait a second. Like I, you know, when I went to school, like my goal was to graduate, you know, four years, get a degree, then work at Google for like a bunch of years, then work at a mid-sized company, work at a startup. And then finally start a company when I was like 35 or whatever. And then all of a sudden, like I went from like being in high school in Singapore to like investors offering me money to start a company in like a, a year and a half. Like it was mind boggling to me. Um, but yeah, I was like, well, wait a second. I can, I can skip, you know, my whole, like I can, I can basically get to the end of my career today. Like I can skip to at least the dream job that I really wanted, which was I can raise money, start a company, kind of do whatever I want. 
obviously like high failure risk, et cetera, but I can try. And if I, and the way that I positioned it, you kind of asked before, like, you know, my parents and encouragement, like how they handled like one, me going to, you know, the States for college and then dropping out to join Pinterest and then dropping even like that was risky and then leaving Pinterest to start my own company. And, you know, it was also kind of another level of risky, even though the first risk actually would have worked out quite well. Um, but the, the, I always message it to them and myself as like, look, like I'm trying something new. And if this doesn't work, I can go back to what I was doing before. Right. I can kind of go up the stack. Like I can join Pinterest. And if I, if Pinterest fails, then I just go back to getting my degree. Like USC's happily going to welcome me back. Uh, they want my money, you know, like they're not going to say no to that. Um, and if Gumroad didn't work out, I could go back to work at another startup or even Pinterest or, you know, like, or go back to USC even, you know, like there's all of these options that I felt were kind of safety nets in a way. Right. And so I wouldn't totally like just crash land. I would be able to kind of buffer my fall a little bit with these different opportunities. And actually having these opportunities makes you vastly more employable. Right. So like my expected value, expect, expected comp, even if Gumroad had totally failed, would be like two to three X higher because companies like Pinterest and Twitter and all of these companies today are trying to hire people who've founded things because that's what they really need is they need people who built stuff from zero because they're trying to build stuff from zero within the organizations themselves. And they don't have enough people who've done that before. There's just not enough people who've done that before on an absolute number. Right. So at Twitter, there's even less. Um, and so that's kind of how I kind of thought about it. And so I left Pinterest, uh, raised a seed round, raised a million dollars, initially $1.1 million in the fall of 2012 or 2011. And then in 2012, early 2012, raised a series A from Kleiner Perkins. So they put us, it was a $7 million series A and then ended up raising a little bit of money, of money since. So kind of ended up being around 10 million or so dollars in that kind of era of the company. And then kind of just, you know, basically spend the money on hiring engineers, shipping product. And just, again, going back to what I was saying at Pinterest, right? Just like the loop, right? Of just like showing up to work, shipping products, talking to customers, trying to improve the product, doing that over and over again. And then luckily the product kind of grew, you know, and we hit sort of what people call product market fit, right? Um, and that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of like what, what, what happened until 2015 when we went out, tried to raise the series B and then failed to do that. So things stopped working out for me, but I was on a nice little run for the first few years of my career, at least. Yeah. Let's talk about I me. Mean, if you don't mind us talking about that a bit more, that sales, the fail yeah. series B, um, you know, we read your blog about it and you want to read steep details about your statistics and charts and everything. Can you kind of explain to us like what was going through yourself, through your mind from a mental standpoint? from like mentally, what were you thinking about your, yourself, your employees or company? And then kind of talk about like, what were some of the reasons why you guys were unable to go for a series B? Yeah, totally. I mean, it was tough, honestly. I mean, we went out initially, we, we had like maybe a year and a half worth of runway. Um, we would have run out in sort of like mid 2015 or so. Um, and so we went out to, I started talking to investor friends of mine in sort of fall or winter of 2014. And they came back and said, you know, you have a great team, you have a great product, uh, you have product market fit, it seems because you're even growing up and to the right. 
Like, but you're gonna, you're not gonna be able to raise a series B, or at least you're gonna have a hard time. Uh, and the reason I kind of a singular reason in, in my, I'm sure other people have other opinions on it, but my sort of view on it is that the numbers just weren't strong enough. Like we were growing up into the right, but what I didn't really estimate at the time was how important sort of this compounding month over month growth was. You can't just be growing up into the right. You have to be growing at a rate that shows your potential to be a hundred X or a thousand X investment over time, which means you have to be growing 20, 30% a month at that scale that we were at. Like you have to be growing very, very fast and we just weren't right. And so that was rough, honestly, because I publicly put so much into, you know, Gumroad as my identity. I was like, as I mentioned, I was like, my bio is like founder of Gumroad, right? Like literally that's it, uh, which is great if it's working and maybe not so great when it stops working so well. Um, but yeah, that was the hardest thing. The hardest thing was realizing, wow, I put all of my eggs into one basket. Even though everyone tells you startups are really high risk. I think if you're a founder, you kind of believe that you're going to defy the odds. And then when you realize like, oh, maybe you are part of that statistics, right? That's like pretty brutal to your kind of ego. And the way that I dealt with it was basically saying, look, I'm not going to fail. I know Gumroad will exist uh, because I have positive unit economics. And if I really need to, I can run the team or run the company very, very lean, right? Um, very small. And I obviously it wouldn't be easy. We'd have to do a round of layoffs. We'd have to let a bunch of people go. We'd have to get rid of the San Francisco office. I might have to leave San Francisco. There are a bunch of things that may need to happen, but Gumroad's not going to die. And I think as long it's kind of like when you, you know, it, it almost gets harder sometimes when you, when you realize that, because it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, you can finish the marathon, but you still have 10 miles to go. You're like, Oh, I know I can finish. So like, it's up to me. And that sucks because I wish I almost got hurt and then I didn't have to, but if I know I can, then it's, it's only me stopping me. Right. Um, and so that's kind of what I realized in uh, sort of that 2015 Time frame. And I told the whole team, this is something I'm very glad that I did, but I told the entire team, uh, we were around 20, 23 people at the time. And I said, look, it was January and it was our all hands. And I was like, we in our current state will fail to raise our series B. Like, I just think it's incredibly unlikely with the numbers. The good news is the only thing we have to fix is the numbers. If we can fix the numbers, we have the right team. We have everything else. We just need to fix the numbers and let, you know, we, maybe I thought we focused a little bit too much on other things. We didn't, we thought investors would give us a little bit more leeway. turns out they really need the numbers. So like, let's just focus on the numbers. Let's show them that we can move the numbers. We called it moving the needle, but effectively inflect the numbers. And then I'm going to keep talking to investors and I have good relationships with them. So they'll be honest with me. And as soon as we believe we have the numbers, we'll go raise the money and we'll get back to it. And then nine months later, we didn't have the numbers. Uh, it turned out it's much harder to like, fix those kinds of things than we initially thought we did have a great team. We did ship a ton of features, but it just, the macro kind of environment, I think was just too strong. And I talk about this in the essay where I say, basically the market you're in is going to determine most of your growth, right? Like you cannot be in control of how, for example, COVID was amazing for government. We doubled, we went from 5 million to 10 million in revenue, which is just a crazy for basically no employee company with no marketing, no sales team, nothing like just pure organic growth. Why? Because COVID like, wasn't up to us, right? So it cuts both ways. It can be really great, can be really terrible, but I think it's important to understand that you can't surf in a lake. You have to go find an ocean. And I think Gumroad was kind of a lake in that way. And so I told the team, hey, 
we didn't hit the numbers. We're going to have to do a round of layoffs. Shouldn't be surprised to anybody because we've been talking about this for the last nine months and it wasn't. And everyone was very grateful or maybe not grateful is the right word, but like, you know, understanding, I guess. Right. Um, And actually even some employees are like, wow, you had, you must've had such a hard time. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I'm like one who's letting you go. (laughs) Like I'm still, you know, but they were just, you know, I I think like that's been a theme that I, I try to, to kind of honor all the time, which is like, I try to be super transparent with everybody. I find that that is like a great way to build trust with people. And when things work or even when they don't work, like that's how you create, you know, retain that trust and integrity is you never surprise anybody. Um, I found that that works pretty well, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, that's kind of what happened. And and then, you know, basically government shrunk, uh, it ended up being like a small team of like five people. And then eventually it was just me at the time. And I just ran the ship basically by myself for like a couple of years. And then Gumroad has sort of been on the uptake recently. So we've, we've kind of grown and now we're, we're doing great, but it was definitely like a rough period of time. And the way that I justified it to myself was a lot of it is a matter of perspective, right? Like the easy kind of Silicon Valley framing of it, which was the framing that I was coming from was I tried and failed very publicly to build a billion dollar company and I don't have a team and Gumroad's probably not going to be a unicorn and no one really cares about me. And so that kind of sucks. And I have to like do support and like keep the lights on and, but I don't have any energy to do anything else or whatever. Um, That's one framing. The other framing or another framing is I can travel the world. I can work on this thing a few hours a week, do support, keep the lights on. And then I can write or paint or draw or do nothing. Uh, I have almost unlimited time. Right. Uh, And I just slowly tried to adopt the second way of thinking. And it was like, I think that is really what gave me the energy to be like, to be grateful for my sort of situation instead of bitter about it, you know? Um, And once I was grateful for it, then I was like, wow, this is amazing. I can do whatever I want over time that allowed me to build up my own energy kind of reserves and then hire people. And then now I still run Gummer today. We're at like 12 million ARR and growing pretty nicely. And we have all this amazing stuff that we get to do, but only because I was not going to fail, right? Like it was just not an option for me. And maybe that survivorship bias, because maybe Gumroad could have still failed. Who knows? There are certainly those moments, but you know, all I can say is that it worked, you know, for me eventually, but like COVID is, you know, like a great example. Like I could not have predicted COVID. Right. Nobody could have predicted COVID really, but it was an, it was like, but the only way Gumroad would have taken, been able to take advantage of COVID was if we just stuck with it for literally nine years, you know? Uh, and then we had an amazing year and now Gumroad's on onto the races, but you know, many people I think would have given up at year seven or year eight or year 8.9. And how crappy would that have been? Right. How crappy would that have been if I stopped working on Gumroad, either I sold the business or shut it down or whatever I ended up doing with it. And then COVID happened, you know, and be like, dang it. If I only waited another six months, you know, or a year or whatever. Um, but, you know, ultimately I stuck with it and, you know, I was eventually kind of rewarded for that. So that's the only kind of advice that I can give is like, it worked for me. Right. So don't give up. If you really do have conviction in your idea, you know, like I did, I felt like the creator economy was eventually going to happen. I was just early. Then, you know, you end up getting rewarded for it, I think. Yeah, me. Thank you so much for taking the time to share with us that story. It's wow, it was it was a lot to to take in for us, even as podcast hosts, and just understanding 
because for us it's like we kind of feel like the up and downs like the, the sense of like the struggle the loneliness we're just looking at you from a different lens now it's remarkable because you're so resilient and gritty and you never gave up you know although COVID is a really bad thing that happened to the earth like it did many many ways benefit your business a lot so we're really happy for that and man like i gotta i gotta re-listen to this part again after we were done recording here so i can digest that part again because i think you just gave us a whole life experience within like a 15 minute segment <laughs> <laughs> it's like seven years definitely, definitely yeah like I, I i feel like i'm like, yeah i feel like i had a career within you know, three or four, which is, you know, what entrepreneurship kind of is, to be honest, it's like, it's like a career squeezed into a, you know, a few year period. And you, you You know, you age a lot up here, but you're physically. Yeah. Yeah, At least it's not, it was kind of like, if you look at the, uh, you know, the photos of like uh, Obama, like before he got so great. I saw that. Oh yeah. It's like that. I'm sure being president is much harder, but like, wow. Like there's certain experiences where you just, you just experience a lot, you know? Yeah. You're great Uh, in your mind, but but you're physically young. (laughs) That's the other thing that I, I love about being an entrepreneur is, you know, I, you have to, you can't say no sometimes. And, and that is sometimes like what you need. You need, it's like a coach that says, sorry, you're staying in the game, even though you want to throw up. And, you know, afterwards you're like grateful for the coach in the moment. You're like, this sucks. Yeah. Right. And I, I think entrepreneurship and starting a business is kind of like that because look, if I stopped, Gumroad just stops. Like, yeah. you know, right. um, so, so that I, yeah, that is definitely part of part of part of the the pros and cons of entrepreneurship is yeah. is it's kind of all your fault uh, in a way, but also <laughs> sometimes is the best learning you'll ever have is when you know you're the only one who can you know you yeah. have to figure it out. Yeah, so we got a glimpse of like your book, the minimalistic entrepreneur, and now I can kind of see how everything links together. But let's dive deep into that a little bit more. Like, tell us about like. You mentioned, yeah, now you have more time to write, to write, to paint, to travel. Um, let's talk about the book real quick. Yes, totally. So, so, you know, you mentioned kind of like the, the oxymoronic nature of the title, right? It's minimalist, which is about kind of lack of ownership, maybe lack of time spent doing things you don't want to do. And then entrepreneurship, which is often linked to owning things, you know, first and foremost, owning a business, uh, but also, you know, having everybody kind of come to you and like not being very free, you know, kind of being on call all the time, working 60 hours a week or, or whatever it may be. And I had a joke the other day, it said like entrepreneurship is working 60 hours a week to avoid working 40 hours a week. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's more work, but it's a better kind of work, hopefully. Um, And yeah, I think the, the kind of book just explores this idea of how can you own a business without the business owning you, right? How can you, start a business, scale the business, grow the team, build a product, solve customers' problems and needs, but in a way that lets you travel, draw, write, paint, do all of the things that you may want to do. Uh, and ideally, you know, in a, like the, the, the vision I have for the world is if we have a bunch of minimalist entrepreneurs, we have a bunch of people who are building wealth, but also not being slaves to their job, right? Not being totally corporatized in the process. And I think it's important. Like, I just think it's really important that we make entrepreneurship more accessible to more people, because I think the vast majority of people, when they think about entrepreneur, they don't identify with it. Even I like didn't consider myself an entrepreneur in high school or college, even, even though 
I ended up becoming one. And I actually wanted to like, like go right into entrepreneur as a title, because I wanted to see if we can redefine the word a little bit in people's heads, because I think it's important. I think business ownership, being a creator, building an audience, you know, creating a product, selling that product. Like those are amazing things that we need more of in the world. If we want all these problems that we have to get solved, like the way climate change gets solved is not a bunch of people tweeting or writing. It's a bunch of people building businesses and not one business that solves it all, but many, many, many thousands of businesses that all do a little bit. That's at least my, my belief. But uh, and the way, I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, that's not the case for now. I see a lot of tweets out there. <laughs> I just I do tweet a lot. You, you can do both. You can do both. Uh, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, and, and tweeting is good. It has some benefits. But uh, but ultimately, yeah, you need the, the entrepreneurship component as well. Uh, it's not a replacement for it, right? And, and I think the way you make it accessible to everybody is kind of like what Mary Kondo did, right? You just find an approachable very kind of like well-meaning, simple message that helps people think through what does building a business actually mean? Like if people do have an image of Facebook and supercomputers and sharding and all these crazy terms that scare people away, how do we make it as approachable, as accessible, as minimal as possible? Which is literally, you know, as I mentioned, kind of like a bunch of Ikea desks and laptops and, you know, an internet connection. That's what you need. Uh, everything else is optional. And so I think it's just, that's a lot of, kind of why I titled the book the way that I did. And, and part of the message I hope kind of comes across over time is that like entrepreneurship doesn't have to be a scary, big thing. Running a business is not some weird, daunting corporate task in which you need like a suit and a briefcase and whatever else like you think of when you think of entrepreneur, it's just a person who solves a problem for a group of people, charges money for it. It pays the bills. They, you know, maybe pays payroll, other people's bills too. And that's, a business, you know? Uh, and then beyond that, you can kind of do more and more with it, but uh, at least you have the building blocks to kind of get financial freedom and financial independence. And then you can kind of start solving other problems that you may want to with your time and money and energy, effort, attention, et cetera. Absolutely. I love that you kind of break it down for us because I think a lot of people oftentimes say entrepreneurship is very daunting and it's hard, which it is, you know, it, it can get very complex, but you know, you mentioned time and time again, that it can also be very simple, you know, and you just, it's, there's a problem and you're trying to solve that problem and you know, you get paid for it. And that's, it's really just that simple. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, again, like things get complicated over time, but they start simple right. always. Right. And mm-hmm. over time, as things do get more complicated turns out there are professionals they're experts and they don't want to start companies and so if you can say hey i built this thing it has product market fit i need help i guarantee you there'll be a line of people who are like awesome do you need a cfo do you need a support person do you need a designer like that you know tons and tons of that right and so we have this like pretty big supply demand issue where there's like a lot of people who want to work at companies not that many people who want to start them and I think the solution is to get more and more people excited about starting as many businesses as, as possible and, and many per person too. Right. It's not, I think something one idea that I try to hit on in the book is that success is about you as a person, not about your business. Ultimately like your business, many businesses you start will not work out, but that's fine because the goal is not to have a successful business. The goal is to be a successful entrepreneur. And that might mean, yes, at some point you need a successful business, but often the path to a successful business is actually through three failed businesses, right? Just like Pinterest, I think is a great example of this, right? You know, or Elon with Tesla, like it wasn't his first 
thing, you know, it takes time to get to the bigger and bigger ideas and you, you build confidence in yourself and your ability to do that. Um, and that's really the only, the only way, but at the beginning, like start, you know, start the lemonade stand, like don't start the three Michelin starred restaurant, right. Uh, start the lemonade stand, then do the pop-up dinner, then do like the pop-up dinner instead of at your house, maybe at like some restaurant down the street and, you know, and like do that and build up to it. And eventually you'll have a restaurant. You will, or maybe there's a food truck in the middle. Right. Um, but you will have a restaurant like that is what it takes. And that's what you want it to take because that's how you, you'll learn the skills you need to learn. And then when you're ready to own a restaurant, like you'll be an amazing chef or whatever it may be. You don't want to make those mistakes when you have a restaurant, you want to make them when you're doing pop-up dinners for your friends, you know? Uh, same thing goes with tech, like start with side projects, start with a blog, start with tweeting, start with being a creator. And then over time you can say, okay, I want to build like a moonshot pie in the sky, you know, big business idea. Um, so yeah, that's at least how I, how I kind of think about it and how I wish more people thought about it. But many people just, they don't see that as an option. They just see Facebook and Microsoft. It's like, for example, I had this idea, this is a few years ago. I was like, what if I wanted to start a bank? Well, that seems impossible to me because there's like Wells Fargo, which is like a 150 year old company, like all these, you know, JP Morgan is like a 150 year old company. Like I, all I could see are skyscrapers, right. In, in my head. It's like, how would I start a bank? Like how, how does I even, and it, it turns out you can, you can start small and scale up just like they did. They started with one branch, literally Starbucks was one coffee shop, right. Uh, they didn't have some grand vision to like, become the dominant, whatever coffee purveyor of the world. Um, and, but I think people, people don't have enough of those mental images in their head of like, well, what does Starbucks look like when it has one coffee shop? Well, it looks like the thing down the street from you. That's what Starbucks was at one point. And then they just didn't stop. You know, they opened one and two and three and 10 and 50 and a hundred. And now I don't even know how many thousands of stores they probably have. Too many. <laughs> many, I know. Yeah, they have like three in my block, and I'm like, what? <laughs> but it worked. I get, you know, it, again, they would only know that they needed three when they had one, and they, that still didn't have enough demand or it fill fill the demand. Then they had two. That still wasn't enough. Then they added three. You know, but like yeah. again, even Starbucks still that probably doesn't have some grand master plan. They're probably iterating from where they are today and solving problems going forward, right? Instead of looking kind of trying to predict the future and looking backward from there. I, I, de- I definitely agree. Everything starts with baby steps. And if you break down a problem enough steps, now you have one step, right? Exactly. So exactly. You have to think about that point of view that just, it all yeah. over time just scales up, compounds, and then just goes astronomically high, higher than you ever imagined. But exactly. since, uh, since we're short, a little bit short on time, I want to give our listeners a chance to find out where they can buy the book or reach out to you or learn more about you or read more about your blog because everything you put out there is, it's, it's, it's great content, you know, so our listeners check out, check out this content. It's, it's awesome. I spent a lot of time reading on it too. And it's just great seeing you here in person in our podcast, but yeah, where can our listeners find out more about you? Yeah. So Gumroad as well, Gumroad and your book as well. Yes, totally. Uh, so the, the, the place to start is probably my Twitter account, uh, at S H L is my Twitter and that links to Gumroad where you can learn more about Gumroad, gumroad.com. And also my pin tweet is, my, is that blog post that I mentioned that you mentioned reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company and the book, if you're interested in it, you can check it out at minimalistentrepreneur.com, which has all the links. You can also find it on audible Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Books a Million, 
and maybe your local bookstore too. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today, Sahil. I feel like this conversation was so insightful and I feel like our listeners can learn a lot just from this conversation. So thank you so much for being on. Thank you. That was really fun. Thanks so much for having me again. No problem. Thank you so much again. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.